humans, hello humans, hello humans of the world, of the Twin Cities, of my neighborhood in downtown Minneapolis. Hello, all of you humans. How are you today? It's me, Ellie Krug on AM 950. You are listening to Ellie 2.0 Radio, where we talk about idealism and idealists. I am so glad to be back. And by the way, this is a live tape show. In other words, you're not getting the best of Ellie um, yet again. Although, please know that when you do get best of Ellie, when it is um, rerun, so to speak, um, you know, what that means is I'm out trying to make the world a better place. So, yes, I really appreciate your patience on all of that. Um, but it, it doesn't mean I'm sitting around. It means I'm out trying to um, train or speak or do whatever and trying to change the world. So I am. So um, I am uh, also thrilled to say that this is not a talking head show, that we have the big interview, and it's going to be with an idealist by the name of Michael Rexford, who I met while I was in Los Angeles working to help a law firm become uh, more inclusive. So I think that you'll enjoy that interview greatly. But first, I want to focus on a group of idealists in India. That is the country of India. These, this group of idealists is known as the, the Galabi Gang. Galabi in Hindi means pink. There's a movie about the group titled The Pink Sari Revolution. Sari, which is a head covering that women practicing the uh, Hindu religion wear. And um, I must admit that I'm really pretty ignorant about the country of India um, and about Indian culture and politics. I mean, what I do know that historically India has had a caste system of social standing where people were grouped by economic standing as well as other factors, with the lowest on that scale, both economic and socially, were called the untouchables. Uh, India uh, has formally and legally outlawed its caste system, but you know that um, because we are humans, things are always difficult to change. Um, in practice, at least, um, it is. Uh, we're still grappling with the residue of Jim Crow South here in America even though in 1964 and 65 the Voting Rights Acts um, changed the landscape as it related to political power in the South. India also has a history, even up to this day, of Indian men brutalizing women. Uh, they do that through domestic violence and rape and other forms of violence, and often the perpetrators in India go unpunished. All of this was the impetus for forming the Gulabi Gang in 2006. The gang, don't really think of that in a traditional sense of gang. Uh, think more of it as an organization uh, that's centered in the Banda district, which is among India's poorest regions with a large Dalit, D-A-L-I-T, uh, population. Dalit are the untouchable, uh, the untouchables in India. The gang members, so quote, quote words around gang, number between 270 and 400,000 people. So, I mean, this is a fairly large organization. And while it is predominantly female, there are also male members. The gang fights for women's rights regardless of caste. Uh, that fighting uh, for women's rights uh, is involves um, rooting out or talking, at least centering on government corruption, child marriage, and dowry deaths. 
Uh, the latter being um, dowry deaths are occur when the bride's family can't come up with the dowry at the time of the marriage or shortly thereafter. And then husband's family from a sense of honor um, or sometimes it's the bride's family uh, will kill the new bride. Um, now, all of that is outlawed in India. Um, but um, again, habits are hard to break. <laughs> That's for – that is uh, – I'm – don't mean to uh, laugh about that other than I just want to make clear that this is the way humans are. One of the leaders of the uh, um, Golabi gang uh, is, uh, was a, a woman named Sampat Paul. Um, and part of the impetus for her to form the Golabi gang or be involved in it as leadership role was that she had been married at age 12. Um, the things that the gang have done, they have protected when farmers were denied a compensation for – they have protested when farmers were denied compensation for failed crops. Uh, they've worked to ensure for food and grain distribution to farms in rural areas. So we are talking about a large presence in the rural part of India where, again, it is hard to break old traditions. Um, and uh, the, the gang has uh, pressed uh, – for pensions for widows and fought for against uh, government corruption, as I've already said. In 2008, when an electricity company cut power to extract bribes, uh, the Golabi gang members stormed um, an electric company office to demand that the electricity be turned back on. In another incident, when a Dalit, again, remember, lower caste woman was raped uh, by a man of a higher caste, and the incident was went unprosecuted. Galabi gang members attacked the rapist with bamboo sticks. Now, I am never an advocate for violence. I want to make sure that you're clear, you understand that. However, um, it sounds to me that the judicial system in parts of India is so primitive and so chauvinistic, that's a very mild, mild phrase, so marginalizing of certain people. Um, it sounds as if this is the type of thing that the Golabi gang had to resort to in order to have some positive outcome. In another incident, when a 17-year-old woman went to the police to report that she had been gang raped, uh, that woman was actually the one arrested for reporting the rape. As a result, Golabi gang members organized protests in front of the police station uh, where the woman was being held they also protested in front of the home of one of the rapists and that rapist happened to be a member of the Indian legislature. Again, I'm not a fan of violence, um, but a change can never happen. Change can happen. It absolutely can happen when large numbers of human consistently show up and demand change. This is what the Golabi gang helps to make happen. Their group of idealists trying to change an entire country. Remember, India is about 1.3 billion people. And uh, they're obviously as idealists using their imagination. And all I've done is give you a very, very superficial um, examination of the Galabi gang. But I wanted to highlight them because I don't talk about uh, things that happen internationally. I keep focusing uh, when I talk about idealism about American idealism. But idealism is alive and well across the world and I hope that you know that. And in some places in the world, idealists uh, make their mark much larger than idealists do here in the United States. 
Uh, maybe in part because some issues are far more pressing in other parts of the world and it compels people um, to take desperate measures, even the idealists. Um, in other instances, though, um, uh, it's, it's that people may use their imagination more broadly and uh, not be as fearful as we are here in America about change or about uh, rocking the boat. As I do my work, I hear a lot of people being afraid of ang being anxious. I just had that yesterday. Somebody saying, I'm really anxious about uh, this training that you're going to uh, give us, Ellie. I'm just really worried about me ma being made uncomfortable. And my response back was, I am so sorry um, that you're going to be made uncomfortable, but guess what? I've got to make you uncomfortable in order for there to be change. So uh, the one uh, last thought I will give you about the Golabi gang is that they've obviously mastered the art and the understanding of, of gathering large groups of people to stand in front of places to make points, whether it's a power station, electricity office, whether it's a, whether it's a, a police station, or whether it's the home of a rapist. They've really uh, come to understand the power that goes with numbers. And you know I'm not uh, political on this uh, show. I'm a unifier, not a divider. But query, query, what would happen in America if consistently and regularly large groups of people began demonstrating in front of certain places, certain power centers to demand change consistently. I mean, I'm not like talking two nights in a row. I'm talking every night, 10,000 people standing in front of a courthouse or a White House chanting, demanding change, demanding that American ideals be upheld. Just throwing that out there for you. Just consider it, because the Galabi gang obviously has figured out how to translate idealism into mass power. Okay, well, you're listening to me, Ellie Krug, with Ellie 2.0 Radio. If you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com. Ellie Follow me on Twitter at Ellie J. Krug, or excuse me, at Ellie Krug. Follow me on Instagram at Ellie J. Krug. And um, I'd love to hear from you at Ellie J. Krug at gmail.com. We'll be back in a minute with the big interview. Thanks. At Better Futures Minnesota, we transform the lives of men and support Minnesota's environment by working towards zero waste. Our approach reaffirms each man's dignity and supports self-sufficiency. Better Futures Minnesota is a work training model. Through our reuse, retail warehouse, and supervised work crews with specialized in residential and commercial building deconstruction, property maintenance, appliance recycling, and janitorial services, we demonstrate ways to employ hire-to-employ men on a pathway to independence. Hire our work crews at BetterFuturesMinnesota.com. Branding Electrolysis on Grand Avenue in St. Paul has been a leader in permanent hair removal for people of all skin types and backgrounds for over 30 years, celebrating diversity and priding themselves on finding the right treatment plan for each client's individual needs, regardless of race or gender. Services include electrolysis, body waxing, facials, microneedling, and permanent makeup. Book your 60-minute complimentary consultation, including a 15-minute treatment today, for beautiful, lasting results. Visit BrendingElectrolysis.com.
We're back on AM 950 LE 2.0 radio. Okay, so um, your your homework uh, is to go study the Galabi gang. Uh, remember, Wikipedia, the great uh, the great know-all, will give you at least what you need to know about them. And um, I cannot stress that enough about that thing about um, assembling groups of humans, large groups of humans somewhere to make a point. Okay, well, listen, we are now uh, ready for the big interview, and I am really thrilled to say that we on the line here, we have Michael Rexford from Los Angeles, who is um, the founder of a nonprofit by the name of Light Hope Life, Inc. Michael, are you there on the line? I am, Ellie. Michael, welcome to Ellie 2.0 Radio, and thanks so very much uh, for being on the show. I'm just really thrilled that you're here. Thank you for having me. So just uh, to give the audience a little bit, bit of background, my audience, Michael, already knows that I, I speak and train about human inclus- inclusivity across North America. It's part of me being this huge idealist. Um, and so, audience, I was recently in Los Angeles speaking at a very large law firm, um, the Manat Law Firm. And uh, Michael happened to be in my audience. He was somebody getting a gray area thinking training. And Michael, you then um, – I don't – you know, I remember because <clears throat> I have your picture from uh, some of the materials that I researched on you. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't even think we even talked uh, personally. Did, did you even – did you did I grab you for any of the role plays even? Uh, no. Okay. Interestingly, uh, you were brave enough to, to share your experiences – um, your many experiences, and included among them was um, your your father's suicide. Yes, that's right. Um, nineteen ninety. Yep. Nineteen ninety. Yeah. Uh, and uh, if I remember correctly, you were at Manat to give a series of the same presentation because there are so many people in our building. Uh, and after the um, your presentation, I went back to my office and thought that you might be interested to know about my efforts in the suicide prevention space. Uh, and just, I, I was incredibly drawn to your efforts and your philosophy and, and, and your history and all of the things that you share that make you who you are. And uh, I just felt compelled to reach out to you and let you know what I was doing in the hopes that maybe there was uh, some sort of connection that could be made, maybe some collaboration or, or coordinated efforts in, in some respect. No, well, and I'm so grateful that you did. And actually what it was, I think, is one idealist attracting another idealist and saying, hey. <laughs> so, so, Michael, will you tell us, uh, first of all, tell us about what is Light Hope Life, Inc.? And by all means, give the website address where people can find it. But tell us, uh, what, does it, what does the organization do and, and, um, um, and, and how long has it been around? Sure. Uh, I launched it in the spring of 2016, and it is a a 501c3 nonprofit uh, uh, organization that has two missions, really. Um, One is to raise critically needed funds for those folks and organizations out there who are doing such important work in the areas of research and outreach and education uh, in the area of suicide prevention and mental illness generally. Um, but more importantly, it occurred to me as a prior suicide prevention uh, volunteer hotline counselor that people in 
society don't really know how to talk to others who are struggling, who are in crisis. And because I had been through such important training in how to talk to folks in crisis in order to be on the hotline, uh, I recognized it as an opportunity for me to go help educate people in how to have those difficult conversations. They're uncomfortable. They're awkward. Um, we in American society and potentially broader are essentially trained not to be nosy, not to be intrusive, right. uh, to give people their space. And that leaves people who are struggling isolated, which only compounds their difficulties. Well, and we're also afraid, us humans, you know, and we're risk adverse. And so, you know, there are a lot of people that are afraid to get into deep chats with other people because they don't know where they will lead and then they're going to be put on the spot. And so it's much easier for us to avoid or do the superficial. So absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I, I have found uh, and I've now been traveling all over the country talking to people and giving this presentation that I've created, which is entitled How to Talk to Somebody in Crisis. Um, we're all perpetually in some state of discomfort. So in my view, let's lean into it and get comfortable having the conversation because while there are mental health experts, psychologists, psychiatrists, therapists, and so forth uh, who are available, um, we all are in many ways um, kind of first responders to each other. You know, I, I recognize that that the the lawyers on both sides of my office at Manat, uh, I spend more time with them than I do with folks in my family. I and and probably they spend more time with me than they do with folks in their family and their friends. And so I may be best positioned to notice concerning changes in their behavior and their words and and best position therefore to help right well and 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 uh we're gonna have to take a break in in about a minute or so but michael uh, can you give us a little a little bit of statistical information i mean from your website and from other materials that i saw that you did and we'll get into uh, an article that you did for billboard uh, magazine uh the rate of suicide is increasing in the, in the country is that right in the last 20 years or so, it's gone up over 30%. If I remember correctly, and I, I shouldn't be quoted on this, I believe that this, the rate of suicide in, in the country has gone up in every state except Nevada, but Nevada was already higher than other states. Okay. Um, so to kind of close that troubling loop. But uh, yeah, it's it's not getting better. It's getting worse. And when we talk about handgun or gun violence uh, statistics in the United States, the vast majority of gun violence is in the form of suicides. It is. And and males and and males tend to use firearms for for suicide attempts um, and um, overwhelmingly uh, Females tend to use medication, pharmaceuticals, overdoses, which tend to be um, less, and I, I hate this word, successful. Um, right. But, uh, yeah, right. gun, gun violence, uh, particularly in this uh, Second Amendment uh, environment, 
um, there, there is a, a troubling uh, intersection between those. Yeah, which is all the more reason for a 24-hour, 48-hour wait period between buying a gun and being able to get it. Michael, Absolutely. we're going we're gonna to have to take a break, but when we come back, I want to hear more about, I mean, you as an idealist, and you are, okay? Um, I'm just telling you, friend. Uh, <laughs> you know, starting an organization and going from, uh, you know, zero to something else, and I want to hear about that, and then I want to talk about you. So, listeners, we've been speaking with attorney Michael Rexford from Los Angeles, who is the founder of Light Hope Life, Inc., a suicide prevention and education organization. Um, if you like what you hear on this uh, uh, show, you know, go to my website at elitekrug.com. And when we come back, we'll talk more with Michael. Thanks. This is Ellie Krug from Ellie 2.0 Radio on Mondays from 7 to 8 a.m. Many listeners know that I founded Human Inspiration Works LLC, which trains on human inclusivity and on how to be welcoming diverse humans. Today, organizations of all sizes find that they need to train team members on diversity and inclusion. I can do that. Many say that my trainings change the way they see the world. I'd love to help make your organization more welcoming. For more information, go to humaninspirationworks.com. Thank you. Branding Electrolysis on Grand Avenue in St. Paul has been a leader in permanent hair removal for people of all skin types and backgrounds for over 30 years, celebrating diversity and priding themselves on finding the right treatment plan for each client's individual needs, regardless of race or gender. Services include electrolysis, body waxing, facials, microneedling, and permanent makeup. Book your 60-minute complimentary consultation, including a 15-minute treatment today, for beautiful, lasting results. Visit BrendingElectrolysis.com. I'm Dr. Thomas Adams, President and CEO of Better Futures Minnesota. We're a social enterprise dedicated to rebuilding lives through housing, workforce development, health and family engagement, and coaching supports that give men the skills and relationships they need to succeed. Better Futures Minnesota engages men who had a history of incarceration, homelessness, poverty, untreated mental and physical health challenges to help them achieve self-sufficiency and a better future for themselves and their communities. Visit us at BetterFuturesMinnesota.com to learn how you can support our enterprise. And we're back on LE 2.0 Radio on AM 950. Um, we've been speaking with, well, we had started speaking with attorney Michael Rexford from the Manat Law Firm in Los Angeles. He is the founder and uh, current curator of Light Hope Life, Inc. It is a suicide prevention and education organization. Uh, Michael, uh, to pick up on where uh, we we left off, we had been talking yes. about the the high incidence of suicide in America. Tell us exactly what is it? Uh, you know, you, uh, Light Hope uh, Life Inc. is two years old. I mean, well, no, three years old now. I mean, it's one thing for you to be interested in. Um, this topic and and to maybe want to go and volunteer and and you've talked briefly about being um, a volunteer in a suicide prevention hotline. It's one thing to do that to, versus going all the way, you know, doing the hard work of getting a, a nonprofit up off the ground, filing the paperwork, creating a board, you know, getting you got a website, you have a heck of a website, and please um, let, every, let everybody know the logo and all that. So. I mean, come on. And, and by the way, you're an attorney full time. So so tell us about this. I mean, how, what's the process been like for you and how many hurdles have you had to overcome to get to where you are right now? 
Well, I guess the the, the saying uh, "a Rolling Stone gathers no moss" uh, is something I identify with. Um, the, the thank you for giving me the opportunity to uh, to, to promote the the organization, and it, it is Light Hope Life, all one word: L I G H T H O P E L I F E dot org. Uh, it's it's been an it's been a, a journey that has been so gratifying. Uh, yes, it's, I had no idea how much goes into uh, setting up a, a, a nonprofit uh, and, and get it visibility. Um, but I, it, it is something that I just am compelled to do because I so identify with people who live in darkness um, and, uh, I, I'm happy to give a, a little thumbnail sketch of my experience back in the 90s that led me to the brink. By all uh, means. Which is, By all means. Which is really what, what led me to create this. Uh, I had taken uh, a, a medication um, that, that sent my liver into the stratosphere and um, was so painful and so uncomfortable. And, and I was told that the reaction might kill me at any moment and kind of possessing that soundbite in my mind at uh, what was then the the age of of 24 I, I i thought well if i'm simply waiting to die um then maybe the one last measure of control that i can have uh, in my life is to end my life uh on my own terms uh, and thankfully, with the expert, amazing care of uh, the head of hepatology at Cedar sinai uh, I was able to make it through that dark period. But uh, shortly after uh, I regained my health, I called what was then the operator. It was kind of pre-internet. I didn't own a computer, and I asked if there were a suicide hotline, and they connected me through. And I said, look, I've just been through this immensely difficult excruciating experience that brought me to the brink of uh uh you know to the brink of suicide and and uh i feel like i there's i i need to help in some way and they said we are desperately in need of of hotline um counselors and um and i went in and and went through the two months of intensive training and and uh got on the lines and it was an eye opener and just the most meaningful work that I had ever done in my young life. So you were finding people trying to survive the human condition, not doing it very successfully and contemplating whether, like you, um, having one last measure of control and taking their lives. Well, it, it's interesting that you say um, not, not, not going about it successfully. I'm always greatly encouraged by folks who reach out, they ah, they okay. they look out for the for the phone number and they make the call. It's the folks who don't call that I'm concerned about, but I don't know where to find them. Right, and and it's the folks who you know, and that's always kind of the 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 tool that I keep in my hip pocket, which is, you know, when people are depressed and 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 are you know kind of thinking they might be done with life, they frequently reject help. And sometimes I have to resort to the question, hey, you know what? Some part of you wants to live. You called. <laughs> Let's let, you know, let me appeal yep. to that part of you. Uh, and it is 
There, there is, there's no safety net. There's, it's just, it's me and another soul. And, you know, it's, okay. it's, it's immense. Well, it sounds, you know, it, and, and I know that we could probably talk with you for a long time, but there's a couple, <laughs> a couple of things first I want to get in. I mean, uh, in terms of your organization, I mean, uh, you have a board of directors. How, I mean, how much have you been able to raise for, um, suicide prevention? Uh, efforts with other organizations. I mean, do you are you a gatherer of funds and then distributing those funds to other uh, yes, organizations? I, I, the overwhelming majority of the funds are being um, distributed to you know American Foundation of Suicide Prevention, okay, uh, American Association of Suicidology, D.D. Hirsch Mental Health uh, uh, Center in Los Angeles, which is the organization that houses the Suicide Prevention Center okay. uh, on on. On the, I was on their suicide line, uh, and an incredible Bethesda, Maryland, uh, based organization called the Center for Deployment Psychology, which trains mental health providers how to treat the particulars of military action. Oh my gosh. The military population is in a desperate, oh, desperate ab- need. Absolutely. Of, I mean, they're, they're, they're dying by suicide at a rate of, an average of twenty to twenty-two per day, and that's just—I—that's that, I, that not—that's not acceptable. It's an American tragedy. So, how much have you been able to raise and distribute? Uh, I've raised over two hundred thousand dollars. Oh, though so a hundred thousand dollars was raised uh, from one donor uh, upon uh, launching. Um, a new division of Light Hope Life on World Mental Health Day, which was this past October 10th. Um, and that, that new division is called Tour Support, which is uh, a, um, a term of art in the music business that, that refers to the allotment of funds that's, that's dedicated in a recording agreement to support touring recording acts. Well, and let's, uh, and I, can, uh, can I just stop you for a second? You're, you're in LA, you're, you know, with a major, major law firm in LA. You do music, you're doing, you're in the music business, right? Yes, which is hit hard by mental illness, addiction, alcoholism, and, and suicide. <coughs> okay. All right. Well, that, I just wanted to make sure that was clear because on your website, you have this part about your tour support. And I thought that that was fascinating, you know, about how it's, you know, there's, a very high incidence of people who are in, involved in the music and the performing arts business who are on tour who who have mental um, crises, and many of those folks end up attempting suicide or taking their lives. Is that right? That is right. And and in May of 2017, I believe Chris Cornell, the uh, uh, the singer of of Audio Slave and Soundgarden and and uh, you know other activities. He was on stage in Detroit, I believe, and shortly after getting off stage, he he was he was dead. And two months later, Chester Bennington of of Lincoln Park, and and it was those efforts that led me to write a piece on how to talk to people in crisis for Billboard magazine, which I had targeted specifically because that magazine, of all magazines, is read by managers and lawyers and accountants and the folks who surround the people who keep dying this way. Michael, and I'm looking at that article right now. And listeners, um, please go to um, lighthopelife.org or just Google uh, Michael Rexford Billboard magazine to get his article. But the the thing, Michael, I just want to uh, uh, compliment you on is 
You offer tools. I mean, you're not, it's not just like a website, come look at us. You've got tools right on there about how to talk to people that are in crisis, what things to say and what things not to say. I just want to compliment you about that. I used to run Thank a non- you. I used to run a nonprofit and and by the way raising $200,000 within 3 years of getting your nonprofit off the ground rock star okay I just had to say it that way <laughs> Now and so Thank really you. I just now listen um we have about uh, 3 minutes left and I just want to I want to talk about you Michael okay Okay because um you know, and I've been throwing at you, you know, you're an idealist and all of that stuff. And I hope that that's OK with you because um, I've been called worse things. OK, well, uh, I actually <laughs> consider it the best compliment I can give to anybody. <laughs> so but, I, I likewise do. So how did you get here? I mean, I know that you talked about having your own personal health crisis um, and, and that led you to pick up the phone and say, I want to volunteer. And by the way, by the way, it's not a given. It's not a given that somebody who went through with what you did would want to give back. There would be other people that would be saying, I need to take more from life before life's gone. So what, what is it about you that makes you idealistic, do you believe? When did, growing up, did um, you have some role models? You know, um, um, I, I had a couple of – I had a, a, a challenging upbringing in many ways, um, a subject for another show perhaps. Um, but I had a, a, a number of really important older – non-family members who were they just had an amazing viewpoint and perspective and influence on me and i always i was always conscious that look we're all in this together (laughs) and if there's some way that i can help others in ways that i was helped why wouldn't i do that it's really that straightforward i know that that implementing that philosophy is is uh, you know um, n- not as common as as it ought to be, but um, that's really what that's that's my kind of driving philosophy. I've okay. been very fortunate. Well, okay, and and again, it's not necessarily a given. So I just you know what you're doing. I mean, you've done hard work to create a nonprofit. I mean, this is not easy work. And, and in addition to that, you're holding a job full time as a lawyer. So there's, I mean, you, you know, my hat is off to you about what you're doing. And I know that you've had other people tell you this, but I'm going to tell you this from the bottom of my heart. I'm very thankful for what you're doing. My father, I don't think my father would have been one of those that would ever have reached out. I just, he just wasn't one of those people. Um, mm-hmm. But know that you are making a difference in the lives of many, many people. And that I just want to thank you as a human. Um, Thank you for doing. I appreciate that. your kind words. You know, and uh, I just um, um, well. So uh, you've got uh, twenty seconds left. Do you want to just give the uh, email address, or excuse me, the website address for? Yeah, uh, I, I will give it one more time. But one thing that I would love to close with um, that I hope motivates <laughs> others: uh, the website is lighthopelife.org. Um, but of all the people that I may have helped through my efforts, I've helped myself through the kind of soul feeding that my efforts have provided me. Uh, And I think that if everyone makes efforts to work towards those causes that are important to them, that speak to them, that resonate to them, um, our world will be so much more positive and healthy. 
Michael, that is an excellent way to end your interview. Uh, thanks so very much for being on LE 2.0 Radio. Uh, Thank listeners, you for we were me. talking to Michael Rexford. We'll be back um, with my C Block. Branding Electrolysis on Grand Avenue in St. Paul has been a leader in permanent hair removal for people of all skin types and backgrounds for over 30 years, celebrating diversity and priding themselves on finding the right treatment plan for each client's individual needs, regardless of race or gender. Services include electrolysis, body waxing, facials, microneedling, and permanent makeup. Book your 60-minute complimentary consultation, including a 15-minute treatment today, for beautiful, lasting results. Visit BrendingElectrolysis.com. At Better Futures Minnesota, we believe everyone deserves a fair shot. We believe in personal redemption and second chances, and that those who are dedicated to change and hard work should have the opportunity to achieve success and make a positive impact in the community. The men we embrace and serve have made mistakes, but they aren't bad people. We work with men who take responsibility for their past and are committed to doing better, who work to create a better life for themselves, their family, and the community. Learn more at BetterFuturesMinnesota.com. And we're back on LE 2.0 Radio. Uh, Michael Rexford, um, very inspiring, I'll tell you. You know, it's amazing what happens when um, we <clears throat> have life crises. It's amazing what happens when we see people um, hurting, uh, how it makes us and motivates us to do things in the world, to make the world a better place. That is idealism at its core. It is. All right. Well, now we are in my C block where I talk about my work and about what's going on in my world. And let me just tell you, it has been a whirlwind for me. I have been on an airplane, I don't know, I think maybe nine or ten times since uh, the second week of September. I have put several thousand miles on my car driving around uh, the Midwest uh, to go and speak and do things. And um, and part of uh, that is uh, intentional in the sense that <clears throat> earlier this year I made a, a vow that I would do greater, more work in greater Minnesota and the greater Midwest because there aren't many Ellie Krugs out there that are visible. But boy, I'll tell you, there are a whole lot of people that are LGBTQ, a whole lot of people that are of various colors, a whole lot of people of various standings um, in uh, – in the mid, greater Midwest who are invisible or who feel as if they don't matter. And I have a sense, sometimes at least my goal is when I show up, to give people inspiration and hope. So um, this week uh, I am uh, taping this show on Friday before you will hear it. So, but, so the week of whatever uh, the uh, 15th uh, falls in, uh, this week, so just three nights ago, I – did something that I, I think was fairly remarkable. I, I didn't only do it, I was part of it, so other people did it as well. Some background. The city of Hastings, Minnesota, last year issued a proclamation. Uh, Hastings, by the way, is a city of about 22,000 people. It's on the Mississippi River. It's a very scenic city. And it issued a proclamation. It, uh, the, the, the um, city council as well as the school board, issued a proclamation declaring that Hastings would be a welcoming city to all people, 
regardless of skin color or religion or LGBTQ status, um, sexual identity, gender identity, you name it, they said the city was going to be welcoming. And and that was uh, well received within the community and the region, except about a month later, a month or so later, uh, the leaders of seven churches and a Christian academy issued a letter a public letter to the community saying, hey, we agree with this um, proclamation about Hastings being welcoming, except we don't want transgender people. Um, Apparently the rationale uh, for that letter, and they go on, um, it's a two-page letter um, being very critical of transgender people. And the rationale um, was uh, that um, certainly the gist of it was that transgender people were a bad influence on children with the inference that if you read the letter, that we would somehow turn cisgender children, that would be non-transgender children, that we would turn otherwise cisgender children into transgender children. As soon as I saw that letter, I said I needed to go to Hastings to speak. Um, Now, um, I cannot just simply show up in communities and say, hey, come and hear me speak. I always need a a partner in that community to speak. And I, I eventually found the why um, in Hastings, they were like, yes, we want you to come speak. And then I learned that in Hastings, there's an organization called Thrive in Hastings, which is an organization geared towards helping to make the community more diverse and inclusion, inclusionary. So I'm taping this show on Friday morning. On Tuesday night, like three days ago, I went to Hastings. I did a Transgender 101 talk to about 140 people. I mean, this is a cold night in November, and 140 people showed up. I started out that talk by saying that I was no one special. I'm just simply a survivor of the human condition. It's just that because my voice doesn't match my appearance, okay? I mean, you're listening to what sounds like a man, but I'm blonde-haired woman, fairly good shape. Um, because my voice doesn't match my appearance, my survivorship of, the, of surviving the human condition is far more public than it is for most people. And I spoke from the perspective of being a human attempting to survive the human condition. And I also said early on that I was not there to debate anyone's religious convictions. But at the same time, I was not there to debate my identity as a woman. And I went forward and did my Transgender 101 talk. Um, We were supposed to only go for 90 minutes. And so because, um, you know, we started at 6.30, I think, uh, no, well, yeah, uh, yes, uh, started at 6.30 and we were supposed to be done at 8. So at about 20 to 8, I stopped my presentation and I asked if anyone had questions because I wanted to make sure that we got the questions in before the time was done. As it turned out, there were a lot of questions. And as it turned out, I mean, when 8 o'clock came, I said, I'll, I'm willing to stay. If you want to stay... Um, please do. If you feel you need to leave, go ahead. And I'll tell you, not a whole lot of people left. Not very many. Maybe four or five. All the rest stayed. They stayed for another half hour. Um, and and in the room, there were people, a representative of conservative points of view, um, reserve, representative of the religious point of view. You know, and I got a number of different questions, but it was a – I want to emphasize here, and this is the point of why I'm telling you this story. The entire room – was respectful. It was amazing. I mean, we were all there with different, you know, perspectives and orientations, but no one lost their temper. No one said anything uh, satirical. Uh, You know, 
it was just it was just very respectful. And I got the questions I expected. I mean, I got a question about, you know, okay, well, you identify as female, Ellie. What about the 50-year-old person who identifies as a 10-year-old person? So do we need to recognize that human? You know, and I identified. I said, well, what you're really doing is you're getting into the slippery slope. And I went on and explained. And I said, you understand that it was a slippery slope kind of argument about recognizing the the – the right of gay and lesbian people to live live their lives. I said that was going on in the 80s. And the person who had asked me the question about the 10-year-old looked like she was about 30 years old. And she said, no, I had no idea about that. And I said, well, that's exactly what was happening. Some of the things they were saying about gay and lesbian people when they were coming out in the 80s were along the lines of, you know, well, we let gays and lesbians be public and, you know, we're going to, you know, the society is going to go off the rails. You know, and I got another question about somebody, you know, asking, well, what if there's a high school boy that says, well, I just decide I'm going to be a girl and I want to be on the girls' um, sports team. You know, and, and again, I said, well, I, you know, maybe something like that will happen, but I don't think that that's a reason to cause a whole group of humans not to be able to be themselves. Um, you know, and I, I, as I said to them, and as you may have heard me remind, remember me saying here on, on the mic that um, human authenticity will not leave you alone to listen. Now, the th- last thing I want to tell you about, we had young people in the audience. We had a lot of young people. And one, and one person who had been identified as female at birth um, asked a question and, and volunteered that she was non-binary. Non-binary people don't identify as male or female. They just identify as humans. And then she started saying that she could never really tell her parents that about her non-binary status because they wouldn't accept her. And the young human started crying in front of everybody. I mean, sobbing. And I just stopped the talk and I, I hugged her. I mean, it was like a good minute long hug because she was very upset. And I think that people understood that this is just more, this is way deeper than just issuing a letter and saying, well, we don't want you in our community. And afterward, people from the conservative camp came up to me and told me how much they appreciated what I had to say and how I did it, that I didn't yell, that I just showed up as a human. So it was remarkable. I'm incredibly impressed about what happened in Hastings. And if it happened there, we can do it anywhere. We just got to get past our fear. We do. All right, I've run out of time. Here we go. I need to give a big thanks to our sponsors, Brending Electrolysis, and to Better Futures Minnesota, and to my producer, Brett Johnson. Brett, you are the best. You know that. And my listeners, thank you so very much for being here on LE 2.0 Radio. Sorry that we've run out of time. I will be back with you with another good show next week. Take care. Bye-bye.